Distilled is a production of Chemical Processing. Chemical Processing focuses on serving engineers, designing and operating plants in the chemical industry. Welcome to the Solution Spotlight edition of our Chemical Processing Distilled podcast. Solution Spotlight, delving deeper into a topic from an industry perspective. On the agenda for discussion is corrosion-resistant heat transfer materials for meeting the harsh and high-temperature process requirements of existing and emerging technologies. I'm Tracy Purdom, Executive Editor of Chemical Processing, and my guest today is Gregory Becker, Senior Vice President of Twinsburg, Ohio-based CG Thermal. Greg, let's talk a little bit about the areas of expertise and the markets you serve. Mm. You know, that is always can be such a boring question. Um, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me answer it this way. I'm going to start by what, what industries don't we get involved with, because that's almost a little bit easier. The industries that we really don't get involved with is food, beverage, for instance, um, pharmaceuticals, don't get involved with that. We really don't get involved with the basic petrochemical processes. In other words, the building blocks like ethylene and the propylene and things like that. Now, the reason I tell you that is because we get involved with, with a lot of things. I was really thinking about it, getting ready for this, and said, hmm, what do we do? And then I'm thinking in my head, well, let me see. Last January, we shipped an HCL scrubbing system to Sweden for a soil remediation company. And then the next month, we're down in Columbia helping a catalyst operation uh, try to uh, get rid of a, an SO2 emissions problem, and then we see the next day we're working with a sulfuric acid provider on the East Coast to get ultra-pure sulfuric acid. And uh, next time, next month, we're working with the, the chloroalkali industry supplying, you know, a multi-million dollar heat exchangers for, a, for an MECL application. So we really, we're, we're, we get involved with a lot, a lot of industries. And, and what I thought about was, well, so you're one of those typical jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none companies. <laughs> and that's just not true. And I said the reason why is all of the applications we get involved with, and, I, and again, I could go on for, for another 10 minutes just talking about the customers and the clients that we work with, I mean, refrigerants, you name it. But one thing all of these, these applications have in common, actually it's really four things I was thinking about it. One is chemical reaction. Two, they all involve mass transfer. And three, most of them involve heat transfer. And then finally, all of them really require a knowledge in the type of materials that can be applied in these type of applications. So to me, it's almost like I like going to a Mexican restaurant. When you look on the menu, there's about 12 main things. They come up with about 85 different dishes. And, uh, and that's kind of what we do. We're, we're experts in distillation. We're experts in absorption, uh, desorption, vaporizing, condensing, uh, and again, mass transfer applications. So we really act as a as a good resource for for one for the bigger companies, and I'm talking the internationals, the multinationals. They have pretty pretty deep engineering resources. In fact, sometimes they're a little more difficult to work with because they have so many what we call SMEs out there. But they only need us to do a certain little thing, and maybe that is to supply the custom design equipment. But then the kind of people we really like working with are those medium-sized to smaller-sized companies who really don't have the engineering resources, and that, that really is where we shine because we have the in-house capabilities that we have, the tools that we utilize. We basically act as their engineering 
team, their in-house engineering team, and we really do work extremely closely with, with the client to figure out, okay, what can we do and what is it you can do so that we can minimize the cost and really have a very well thought out engineered product. I mean, and, and we work on a lot of systems that, that we didn't initially put in. In fact, it's funny. I think it's funny. Was, uh, one of my senior project engineers or senior process engineers, he calls himself the plumber. <laughs> and one day I asked Dennis, I said, Dennis, what do you mean by the plumber? This was like two years ago when he was starting to work with us. And he says, well, when somebody goes ahead and tries to, like, fix their bathroom or renovate it or fix some piping, we're the guys that come in and make it right after they screwed it up. <laughs> so we, that's kind of what we do. We work with a company here very close to us here in Ohio that installed an HCL burner system and absorption system years ago. And we started talking to them about four months ago, and it wasn't our system. And he kind of mentioned that, hey, I can never get this system to really give me the nameplate capacity that I was looking for. Well, we're not expensive. We gave them a very, very reasonable engineering package. We went in and we basically re-engineered it. And, and just by adding in one additional section of packing, he's hit capacity. So that, that's, that's kind of what we do. We're problem solvers is really what it comes down to. And, uh, and my team, we got a really, we got a very, very good team. You know, what I'm saying is that we've got, I call the gray hairs, guys like me, uh, who have been around a while, and uh, we've got a, a lot of nice, young, fresh blood in here under the age of 30, and we actually look at hiring people like that. Really, we like them right out of college. We've got some very good chemical engineers out of Cleveland State and Cornell and some great mechanical engineers out of Notre Dame and Michigan State, and uh, we like to hire them out of college because they, they know tools that we haven't even heard of yet. And uh, when you bring in that, that new perspective, it makes for a very dynamic, very well-fluent team. So that kind of gives you a, a little bit of an idea of what we're up to. So I hope that, that helps. It very much so. It's, it's very interesting to hear everything that you do and the varied um, fields that you go into. And, and as you were saying, you know, it sounds like you are, you know, you wear many hats but master of none, but that's not the case at all with all of the um, folks in your organization. So that's very interesting. Now, let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I think your sweet spot is corrosive environments and high temperature environments. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, the, the name CG Thermal, what it stands for originally when we when we started this company uh, was ceramic and graphite. That's what CG stands for. And of course, thermal had to do with heat transfer. And we actually started out as a as a heat exchanger company, and we were supplying units into basically hydrochloric and sulfuric acid applications, a little bit of nitric, a little bit of HF, and that's that's where the corrosive side came from. So we really got to be experts in handling, and I'll, I'll stick on the main two for the for the non-metallic materials, hydrochloric and sulfuric acid. And it was funny. About three years ago, we're looking at our, our, our sales for the year. We're sitting down kind of going through everything. And I look at my partner and I say, Rick, we're not a heat exchanger company. We're a technology company. Because when we looked at it, most of almost half of our business had gotten away from just the heat transfer stuff, and it really got into more the technologies with the, with the package systems and the engineering, and then the high temperature came in. So to kind of answer your question, we started historically with the the, the chemical industry. Now, in the chemical industry, as everybody out there probably knows, they typically most of their processes are going to be below, let's just say, 200 degrees Celsius. 
And there is an historical re reason for that. And the reason is that when these chemical plants were built back in the 60s, you really, you did not have the materials that you have today. So they had to limit, because of the corrosive nature of the chemicals that they were working with, they had to limit those temperatures in order to stay within the working range of what was available. Well, as much as we like to think the chemical industry evolves, I can tell you 85% of the plants out there are making or doing the same type of product they were 40 years ago, and they really haven't upgraded the materials or haven't had to. Now, from there, we ended up about three years ago, we brought in a technology expert who, who's now is part of CG Thermal. We actually own the business. Um, and what it is, it's, it's a high-temperature heat exchanger, a brand-new world for us. In fact, I'll give you a, what, I, again, I think to be a good story, maybe not, um, how, we, how we met this VPRR AirBTU company was I had gotten an application in from a company out in Nevada who was making hydrogen cyanide. And they sent us an application online for a high-temperature metal heat exchanger. And I literally looked at this thing for two weeks thinking, we can do this. We can do this. Why not? We can do the mass transfer. We can do the heat transfer. And we're talking an application that was in excess of 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit. So anyone who's in the metals world knows when you start looking at metals at those kind of temperatures, you kind of scratch your head a little bit and say, hmm, how can I handle this? Well, the bottom line is I was uh, at a show, actually a sulfuric acid show, and um, I saw a booth there, and I saw this gentleman, and I looked at his, his little flyer, and I said, I think I have an application for you. And I sent it over to him, and he came back, and he said, yes, this is absolutely what we do. And when he explained to me what they do and how they design their heat exchangers to keep metal temperatures down to where they need to be so that you don't have excessive growth and you get all these stresses, literally, Tracy, I said to myself, thank goodness we did not decide to do this ourselves. Because when you start talking about high-temperature applications, Thermal, I mean, the transfer obviously is important. You know, that's what you're buying a heat exchanger for is a transfer of heat. But when you start talking these kind of temperatures, the stress and the mechanical design due to those high temperatures becomes your number one priority. And I think that if we would have designed that unit ourselves, it probably would have worked fine for the first three months. But most people don't put in million-dollar heat exchangers for three months. So that's kind of how we got involved with the, the high-temperature environments. And, and really, that part of our business has been very interesting, and I think it should be interesting to a lot of people, hopefully, out there that's listening to this, because a lot of the emerging technologies out there now, and I'm talking the CO2 capture, uh, I'm talking energy recovery, uh, I'm talking energy storage, we have seen an influx of that over the last two years, big time. And we are seeing more and more of these high-temperature applications and what's happening in the industry is the people in these markets understand when you start talking about supercritical applications and, and some of these things that you think are brand new, they've been out there for 30 years. But the problem is, is people have not been able to get the temperatures up high enough where you actually do a lot of good. So in other words, the payback wasn't there. Now companies are looking for ways to get those temperatures up, and they're really pushing the limit in terms of what metals may be available for that. So the way that, again, the way we approach it is when you're looking at those emerging markets and those high temperature applications is you have to do a very, very thorough CFD, which is basically a computational fluid dynamics. 
what we do is we, we get on, get on. I think we've used the Siemens platform, but don't hold me that. And Siemens, I don't mean to be giving you an advertisement here. But uh, <laughs> the bottom line is we, we go through and we map out. We, we figured out where, where to hit the hammer is what I'm saying. It's very expensive. If you were to take a 70-inch diameter heat exchanger that's, you know, 30 feet long, which is not uncommon, by the way, for these types of applications, and you try to do that analysis all across the heat exchanger, it's going to be very expensive. It's really not practical to do up front. It just isn't. It's going to be a $50,000, $60,000 just to get you a bid, and typically that doesn't work. What we have figured out, basically, you over their 20 years, they know, where, they know that little pie section to look at, and they build the unit so that they're – I don't want to get into too much detail. Basically, the way the unit operates is, is – um, if you take one small pie section, you're able to use that to mock the whole circumference of the heat exchanger because it is a, it is a radial flow unit. So what we do is we go in and we do a complete analysis and we map out those two wall temperatures. So even if you may have, let's say, an incoming stream of 2,100 degrees Fahrenheit on one side and the other side you're coming in at, let's say, 200 degrees Fahrenheit, we map it out, one, to make sure the wild temperatures are well below the ratings for, for that material, and two, we avoid cold spots. Because what happens if you have, let's say, a stream, let's just look at a catalyst operation, which is very common, uh, you know, people out there in sulfuric acid plants, for instance. Those streams may will have an SO3 in them, typically. They're SO3 laden. Well, what happens is, even though that stream is well above the, the, the dew point or the condensation point of, of the water vapor that's in there, the wall temperature, if you're not careful, may not be. So what happens, you end up getting condensation, and you end up getting what's called cold end corrosion. And what cold end corrosion is, is basically fouling. You get a, a black buildup, and you have to clean the unit out on a yearly basis. And two, you can actually get pinhole corrosion because it forms H2SO4, sulfuric acid. And if you're not very careful in your design, you're going to get that. The other problem you get at a high-temperature application is you get a lot of expansion and contraction. And when that unit bundle grows because of the temperature, you want to make sure those tubes all grow at the, as close as practical at the same length so you're not putting all kinds of stress onto tube joints, into wells. Because the most common failure modes for high-temperature heat exchangers is, in fact, going to be the mechanical stress at the tube sheet joint and or, as I mentioned, cold and corrosion. And the other one that people run into now is what we call metal dusting. And basically all metal dusting is, it's a, uh, I don't want to sound like the whiz here because I'm not. This is my team. I just happened to sit in a couple conversations. Uh, we actually just had a study done, uh, paid for a consultant to do about a $30,000 study for us to kind of identify metal dusting. It's been around forever. But basically, when you start talking high temperatures, what can happen is if your carbon activity is too high, you end up getting carbon coming out. And that's what they call metal dusting. And if you get too high of a temperature or too high of a carbon activity, then, then you will get coking. And anybody who's in high temperature applications knows what kind of issues that's going to cause. It's something you want to avoid. And that's something that we look at. So I'm, I'm not trying to make it sound like we know it all, but what I am telling you is if you are talking high temperature applications, just make sure that you're talking to someone who is, in fact, understands the, the mass transfer and the, and the chemical reaction you're going to see at the high temperatures. It's a, it's a little different than what you're going to see in the lower temperature corrosion applications. It brings up the question, though, <clears throat> you design it, and you design it with all of this um, you know, thought process in front of it. 
what about in use and maintenance, and what is the customer on the hook for? They need to maintain. They need to make sure fouling is not happening and these types of things. Can we talk about that a little bit? Actually, that, that, Tracy, that's a very good leading question, by the way. Very good. Yeah, I'll tell you what, the perfect example is going to have to be the uh, um, sulfuric acid regeneration plant. And the reason I'm going back to sulfuric acid uh, for, for this BPRR unit again is because that, that was the birthplace. That's where it started 20 years ago was when you regenerate H2SO4 or you're making H2SO4, there are very specific problems that were in the industry. They were prevalent. And if that is where that term I call cold end corrosion came from. And that, believe it or not, is a very well-defined scientific term that's used in the industry. And it was very typical for these plants to basically every five to seven years have to replace the heat exchanger. It was kind of like just something you did, right? That's what happened. And it was very common that you would clean these things out once a year. And again, because they were addressing those issues, there were no issues. You know, it's it's kind of like I guess if my if my car breaks down every month, I don't have a problem if I got 12 cars. Hey, it's no problem. Now, does that make sense? No. So what we did was went in there. Uh, again, it was about this one was installed 15 years ago. We went in. We did this chemical. We did this uh, mechanical thermal analysis on what they call the cold end heat exchanger. Again, it's a very well defined term. It's where you bring ambient air in. Where that's where it enters the system, and that's where you preheat it. So that's where you have your coldest material temperatures, and that's typically the unit that's going to die on you. Put it to you this way. We, we went in, we did the analysis, we did some really nice out-of-the-box thinking in terms of, of flow pattern within the unit. That unit has been in for over 15 years and has yet to be cleaned or yet to be taken down. So... What I'm getting at is, you, Tracy, you bring up a good point. I mean, when you operate your equipment, obviously you need to operate within the constraints that, that you said you were going to operate in. I mean, I always I don't know if I should say this or not, but I will. We cannot design against stupidity. It can't happen, okay? <laughs> if you're going to operate that unit outside of what you said you were going to, that's one thing. But in a lot of processes, fouling is just, part of the process. Even if you run it exactly as you're supposed to, you're going to get fouling. Can you eliminate fouling? Chances are you may not eliminate it completely, but you can definitely take it from a yearly clean-out to a 15-year clean-out. That, that's not an exaggeration. You can do things to minimize it to the point where it should no longer be costing you a lot of money with up and down time. So that, that's, that's kind of how I, I answer your question. Fouling is going to be there certain applications, you just got to learn how to mitigate it. And, and, you know, another thing to look at, and this has to do more with, let's say, the non-metallic side, we do have a number of applications that are fouling, and they know it. You can't get away from them, particularly when we start dealing with some of these, these there's some graphite plants out there where they're using sulfuric, you have solids, just, you know, there's quite a few applications. Uh, I guess steel pickling is a good one. They know they're going to get fouling because you're going to get iron buildup in these tanks, right? They're going to go through the heat exchangers. So what you do then is you have to design a heat exchanger that's user-friendly. In other words, one that you can easily get inside of without disturbing, you know, a lot of components at all. You know, take the ends off, clean it, put it back together in three hours. For our graphite exchangers that are in those kind of fouling applications, we typically supply them with davits. I don't know if you know what a davit is, but... 
we basically put all both of the heads on davits to kind of like swing arms. So they just undo the bolts, you swing open the heads, you got access to the tube side, you clean it out, put it back together. So in other words, there also are things that you can do uh, with your equipment to help maintain them a little easier. Um, the, the last thought I have on that is when we do look at systems, and, and we do quite a bit, AHCL, for instance, uh, anhydrous hydrochloric acid, MECL, I mentioned that, HCL, there are certain applications that we know because of what we like to say, the kitties and the doggies that are in the stream, they're going to get buildup, fouling. And typically, it can be found in the towers, the pack sections. Well, you know you're going to get it, so it's ignorant if you don't design that tower for some type of easy access to clean it. And I can't tell you how many times we have looked at existing towers and we can't understand why they don't have, you know, two six-inch clean-out holes here. Why don't they have a manway there? And that's kind of what we do besides the process design stuff is we're very hands-on. Our senior guy has been around the block many, many, many a time, and he can he's the guy that tells us, you have to put this thing here. You have to put this nozzle there. Here's why, and here's why. So that that hopefully that answers your question. Yes, it does, and uh, brings up yet another question in terms of materials of choice and recommendations. You have people there that have seen it all, done it all, and can help make these choices. Can we talk a little bit about choices for acid processing and, and if you recommend one over the other? Oh, yeah, that's okay. And that's a, a very good question. Um, when you're talking hydrochloric acid, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying this as a sales point, okay? Hydrochloric acid is the reason graphite process equipment is there. Uh, a little brief history uh, graphite, impregnated graphite, and, and, and that's kind of important, by the way, guys. You're not buying graphite. You're buying impervious graphite, which means the graphite, which which was has holes in it when you pull it off the mill. Let me back up a little bit on that one. Its bottom line is the tube is porous. What we do is we put a phenolic resin into it to make it non-porous. Henceforth, you can use it as a heat transfer material. Um, that process is very important, and it's a whole nother discussion. It's just it's very important that you really know what you're doing putting those two, two materials together, which is really what our plant back here outside these doors, that's what it specializes on in terms of the manufacturing part of it is impregnating the materials and assembling them. But graphite was invented by Union Carbide back in about the 1960s, um, and it really, the technology has not changed that much over these years. And up until... I would say up until the late 70s, early 80s, graphite was really your only or best choice for HCL and sulfuric at lower concentrations. But what happened was people got smart uh, in terms of the mill suppliers. They started introducing nickel alloys, and they started learning how to make them economically. So nickel alloy metal materials have taken over, I would say, probably – um, a bit more than that. Probably 80% of the sulfuric market is, is nickel alloys, but when you talk about hydrochloric acid, graphite is the only way to go. So that's what I would recommend there. Now, there is, there is a new kid in town, and I, I, and I believe we're, we're the only player right now. Uh, there's a material out there which is basically a, it's, it's a graphite material that is bonded. I'm trying to think of an easy way to say this. Uh, by polysulfide. I guess that would be what I would call it. 
And basically, when I say polysulfide, I'm talking about what we call a PPS material. And it's actually been around for a long time. I say a long time, about 40 years. And it's, believe it or not, its main purpose was for uh, window frames, window frames and door frames. That's, that's what it's made out of. Well, this company out of Germany discovered about two years ago how to extrude this material with a very high concentration of graphite, uh, well above 65%. I want to say it's like 69 So basically, you have a graphite material that, again, that is bound by this plastic. And we have some really high hopes for this one. Uh, we've been doing all kinds of corrosion testing, and we put it in our first application. This one here probably would be my one of my recommendations more and more for hydrochloric and sulfuric acid, MECL. Reason being is its cost. It's very, very recently cost, about one-third that of, of other materials. And this is not a sales pitch. It's real. It's very light, and it's very easy to seal. So to answer your question, that's what I would recommend there. The second part of your question is a very good one, um, and that really has to do more with our high-temperature applications. The, the expert that we have, our product manager, he was the president and owner of Bear BTU, and he has been doing this as long as I've been doing graphite. We always laugh about that. But the reality is he knows the world of stainless steels and nickel alloy. You, you have to really be very well-versed on what you can do with those materials at high temperatures. Because the internet, it just isn't enough. It just isn't. And, and, the, and the marketing and the advertisement, you know, I always say when I read some of I think it's Mexico. When I go to Mexico, they say advertisement is the same word that's used for warning. I always thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> but, but, but Jim, is, he knows the, the metals world, and he, we literally are, you know, studying up on that. Like I mentioned, we had a study done recently to really understand what can you do with these materials and what can't you do. So that's, uh, that's really what you need to look for when, you, when you're talking. And I'll tell you, it's, it's always best, if you can, to find a company like ours that is not a manufacturer of the material, right? We don't manufacture metal. We, we buy it. Henceforth, it's almost better than talking to a mill because a mill may try to force you into a material that they make, whereas we find the best material from all the mills we talk to and we apply it. And, and the same, really, with our graphite material. Um, we're not just graphite people. We're not going to apply a graphite heat exchanger in an application where we feel you're going to be better off using, let's say, titanium or, or, or C-276. We, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're a technology company. We will go out and find that technology, and we implement it into the equipment that we supply. Now, is there ever a disconnect with what customers think they need and what you know they need, and what happens there? That is, a again, an excellent question. Um, first of all, we're always very careful to not tell the customer he's wrong. <laughs> but we, we always uh, try to do it in a very polite way and say, have, we thought about, have you thought about doing it in this way? What you just said, by the way, is exactly, it's actually in our mission statement, and I'm not going to talk about the mission statement, but we use, we use the word ownership. And what we mean by ownership is we, we try to help our customers not step on any landmines. We take ownership, and we are not afraid to let that you know that, look, we understand how, what you're thinking here, and, and, and please explain to us the reasons that's driving that. You know, we don't know everything. We don't know why they want to do it this way. 
So we listen very carefully, make sure we try to understand, and then we do take ownership and say, look, this, this, we, we really do understand uh, now what you're trying to do, and here's, here's another way you might, might want to do that. In fact, a perfect example, Tracy, was I, I mentioned, I think, early on um, that we're working on an abatement issue for a, uh, basically, it's a sulfuric acid plant down there in, uh, in Columbia. And when they first came to us, they came to us for a VPRR unit. They wanted to put in a exchanger basically between two of their catalyst beds, and they were thinking that was the best way to go ahead and bring down the temperature, bring down the pressure, and then reduce the SO2 emissions. And we, we looked, we started to look at that. And then after about an hour and a half meeting, and you can imagine, you know, we're, we're back and forth with two different languages, it was actually Jim who had the idea. And he said, why don't you just look at adding one smaller additional catalyst bed and let's move the exchangers past the main operation and use just basically air-cooled and air-heated heat exchangers to treat the gas and put it into the other bed. We took them from a $800,000 initially what they thought they were going to need heat exchanger to two heat exchangers with a total price of under about 185000 And again, that's kind of what we're trying to do. And we also are very firm believers of bringing in the best technology. If, you know, I have a lot of applications out there where historically it would only have been graphite heat exchangers. Well, we've been upgrading people to our ceramic heat exchanger. It's three times as expensive, but it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's got a lifetime guarantee on it against corrosion. And people have been switching over. And the reason we do that is because if we don't bring the best technology, somebody else will. Are we, like, maybe hurting ourselves? I guess you can think you might. I don't know. Some people out there who make graphite exchangers think it's a great idea and they get an order every five years. We don't want that. We want that heat exchanger that we're selling you should the last 15 years. That's why we're replacing our graphite with our ceramic. So, again, hopefully that answers your question. Yes, always. You you are very thorough with your answering of questions. I appreciate that. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit now about the high temperature applications um, and and the maximum temperature limits for the metals that you design with. That's a uh, again. That is a good question. But when you, I don't want to say it's a moving target because it's not. Um, Really, when you talk, let, let me answer the question directly, first of all. The highest that we have looked at to date is about 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, that is, it's very important to distinguish between a process temperature and a mean metal wall temperature or a, a metal tube temperature. What limits the application isn't necessarily the process temperature. It's going to be how hot does that tube get? So even though you may have a stream that's coming in at 2,200 degrees, you want to keep that tube temperature down below about 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. And the reason you want to do that is because when you, if, if, in fact, you've got to apply a code stamp, which a lot of these units, these, these are a lot of air-to-air -air or gas-to-gas, you design them so that you don't have to apply a code stamp to them. You design them for under 15 PSIG. But if you do need a code stamp, you're going to want to keep that metal temperature down to a point where you can still design it for Division One, and basically use the mean metal temperature for one of the – I'm not going to give the exact information, but there's a table that you have to follow. And as long as you can prove that, that you can, you, you're operating below that, that temperature, you're allowed to apply a code stamp. But the only way you can do that is if you do, in fact, do the CFD, 
And you really need to couple that in with the, with the finite element analysis, which we do through one of the SolidWorks packets. You couple those two together, then you can go ahead and, one, give it to ASME, and they're able to put a code stamp on it. But, two, you know you've got a unit, as I mentioned earlier, that is, in fact, going to give you very good, long, satisfactory life to it. So to summarize, again, it's really the metal temperature which you should be concerned with, not necessarily the, the, the process temperature. What happens, though, if, if temperatures go higher, something goes awry? Are there safety issues? Are there fail-safes? Uh, forgive my ignorance yeah, what, on that question. Oh, no, no, that's a very good question. Um, what, you, what you have to do when you're putting in a new piece of equipment, particularly like this when you're operating at a high temperature, um, is you have what's called a HAZOP. Um, Tracy, you may not be familiar with that, but I'm sure mm -hmm. listeners oh, I listeners are. Oh, I am. Well, I am. But I'm sorry for that. I should remember you've been doing this a while. So anyway, <laughs> when, you, when you do the HAZOP, um, we are involved with that. So we will sit in with you and basically go over the scenarios. You basically, we go through and you qualify the, what is the probability function and what is the criticality function. And then we basically together define, okay, what type of safety mechanisms do you need to put in? As an example, if we're designing for 1,200 degrees F and you have 2,400 on one side, you better make sure that you have that cooler fluid on the other side. So what do you do? You obviously have to put an interlock in there. So that 2,400 degrees does not see that heat exchanger unless you've got the other stream actually flowing. So you have to design in so that if there is a fail somewhere, it has to fail safe. So that, that's, how you, that's how you handle that. So there, there, you can't just put it in and just not pay any attention to how you're controlling it because you, were, you, know, you brought up a good point. That thing could, in theory, see higher temperature. But how reliable is it? Well, put it this way. It's, reli it's reliable enough that you're allowed to put an ASME Section 8 code stamp on it. And they would not allow that if there had any real big concerns about somebody getting hurt. We've covered a lot of ground, but I, I like to toss out a final question of, of just a general one. Do you have anything that you want to add that maybe we didn't discuss, but you find important that, that folks need to know? Hmm, that's the one I hadn't thought about because I wonder sometimes if anything I say is all that important. Um, <laughs> it, I, I guess I'll leave it with you, with you this way. You know, there there are a lot of there's a lot of companies like ours out there that really specialize in in what we do. Um, I mean, we I like to call us a concentrated company, meaning that we're not we're not large, but we have a lot of resources because we again we we go ahead and concentrate, one, on, on what our strengths are, but two, we're not afraid to ask for help. So we have gone out and found some of the leaders in the industry to, to work with. I mean, I, three examples. One I mentioned earlier was my senior process guy. He's been doing this forever. Literally, he's uh, been consulting since 1978. The high-temperature application, again, I talked to AirBTU. We brought them in. Uh, and then this I mentioned earlier the PPF-GR. We go out and find them. And, and that's why we're, we're actually the kind of guys that are a good resource for the big consulting firms because, you know, they're, you, they're seeing the, you know, the 10,000-foot view, building a, you know, a gigantic plant. They need somebody like us, and you need to find somebody like us that can concentrate on that, that one operating unit, and that is to make the AHCL, you know, to purify the sulfuric acid. That's what we do. And... Uh, so I, I guess to, to closing it up, I think there are people like us out there, you know, and I, 
going back to high openness, this is, I didn't mean to plan it like this, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, my daughter said, oh, I'm sure we'll get at least one person who's interested. I disagree. <laughs> I go to a lot of these conferences, and you you do see, and you listen to these people talk, and you have these people in the industry that have been doing this 25 and 30 years, and you can just tell by their their demeanor and, and their, their excitement that they're really into this stuff. So there is a lot of experts out there that have been around. Do not hesitate to find them. Do not worry about finding the biggest guy on the block because, you know what, chances are that expert that's been around 30 years probably is going to know a little bit more because big companies have a tendency to have turnover. And sometimes that information doesn't get passed along very well. So that's how I'm going to close that is look for that industry expert, guys. Listen to him, and normally they're going to be your least expensive cost option. Well, Greg, I appreciate the time you've put into this. Uh, you truly have illustrated that you're problem solvers over there. Um, I, from from your expertise, I would gather you're one of the gray hairs because of, of the wealth of knowledge, but you also um, have that new perspective of the under 30-year-old. So I appreciate everything you've you've given us today. No, well, Tracy, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for taking the time. And uh, as always, we look forward to talking to you guys in the future. On behalf of Chemical Processing and our guest today, Greg Becker of CG Thermal, I'm Tracy Purdom, and this is Solution Spotlight. Mm-hmm.